electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla and John Fort, who continues his whirlwind tour. He's live from RBC's Global Technology Conference in New York. Today, the Nasdaq erasing this week's gains as questions continue to grow around the consumer heading into make-or-break holiday season. More on the key tech names at risk this hour. Plus, a look at the street's top e-commerce names amid the volatility, why it's no longer an everyone-wins market. And finally, do not miss our exclusive with IBM chairman and CEO Arvind Krishna. That's happening in just a moment. He's going to sit down with John ahead of a keynote speech at that RBC conference. We're going to kick off today's feed, though, with the latest consumer warning. Uh, Target down double digits, seeing its worst day since May after profits fell 50 percent in Q3 as the company reports a, quote, precipitous decline in consumer demand that they say only got worse in recent weeks. And while the company is planning $3 billion in cost cuts, they're not the only ones tightening the belt this week. Uh, Amazon, as you know, laying off workers in its Alexa and Luna cloud gaming units, two parts of the business most likely to see an impact as consumers cut back on their discretionary spending. John, it's interesting. A lot of inventories coming in in the case of Target sooner than they had been expecting. That's leading shipping rates to come way down. But more goods and uh, bloated inventories means more promotions and more layoffs. Yeah, Carl, exactly. And their overall inventory levels have been coming down quarter over quarter. But then, you know, consumer demand also slowing down. So this goes to what we've been talking about here for several weeks. And I think it also goes to, it's important, there's a difference between what's happening with the higher end, kind of upper middle class, middle Mm -hmm. class, upper middle class consumer, and that mainstream Walmart and Target shopper. I think maybe that accounts for a little bit of the difference in tone and color between Lowe's, Uh, and Target, right? They're really talking about different groups of people. And even when you look at Walmart, Walmart being the biggest grocery uh, retailer in the country, people need food, they're paying more for it, that leaves less money for them to spend on other things at Walmart or, hey, at Target. Grocery is such an important part of this, John. That's what I've been really focusing in on this morning as well. Take a look at the market share among sort of these three names we talk about a lot this week. Walmart versus Target versus Amazon. Walmart's got a 21% share of the grocery market. Target, less than 3%. Amazon, between its e-commerce and Whole Foods, less than 3%. That fits into the story here. There's the discretionary spend, Carl, but there's also the essentials. If you're going into a Walmart to get your groceries, you may look around and pick up some other things. Whereas if you're going into a Target or even an Amazon, you are usually there to buy something that is more likely to be discretionary. But what you're seeing here is Walmart really taking a page from Amazon's book in terms of executing or trying to execute that flywheel. It wasn't lost on me and many others that there was, you know, a big bump up in advertising, something that Amazon has tried to do to, you know, get those that profit margin up. It's a high margin business. 
Uh, yeah, between all those things, John, uh, people buying more sale items, trading down, uh, private label growing 2x the overall enterprise, product shortages, and theft, which we've talked about a couple of times today, costing 400 million in the quarter. You analyze that, uh, you annualize that, and you get a good sense of just how much uh, shrinkage or leakage is going to be a continuing concern for retailers. Yeah, and questions about e-commerce in there, too, because the consumer who's trading down to private label probably isn't paying extra for delivery at the same time, right? That's not a good use of money. Um, but let's stay with the macro, guys. I am here at RBC's technology conference. I'm in Manhattan, got a lot of ground to cover with IBM CEO Arvind Krishna. Arvind, uh, welcome. Um, great to have you and sit down with you here before your keynote. Um, let's start with the macro. What do you see as the impact for enterprise technology, enterprise software of this consumer spending fatigue we see, especially at the mainstream level in Q4 when you least want to see it? Yeah. So, John, first, it's a pleasure to be here with you again. Uh, look, as we look through what's happening in the macro, we have inflation, we have interest rates, we have currency rates uh, changing dramatically, supply chain issues demographic issues as in the shortage of skilled labor. But when you put all this together, it creates volatility. It creates a little bit of uncertainty. All that said, we find enterprise tech is really strong. I'll give you a couple of caveats on that, but by and large, North America, Latin America, Asia, Japan, we find India, Middle East is really, really strong. I have a slight level of concerns on Western Europe, mostly because of energy prices and what that does to consume away uh, liquidity and, uh, and uh, consumer impacts. But outside of that, I think it's really strong. Why? Because when you have labor shortages, when you have higher interest rates, when you have inflation, technology is actually a deflationary answer in the face of all those. So people want to use technology for automation. They want to use technology to substitute for labor. They want to use technology to take care of cyber. They want to use technology to improve the supply chains. And so, I think there's a lot of opportunity, and we can see that. In the third quarter, uh, we uh, produced 15% at constant currency, and that was pretty even across the globe. Yes, currency certainly had an impact on that because you would say 16% higher in Europe would get knocked down because of currency rates. Yeah. However. Um, local currency is important because it does give you a better sense of true operational demand. Well, that's a great, you took us around the world a little bit, uh, yes. which is great at the beginning, but I want to spin the globe again and stop on China because the U.S.-China Commission put out a report just yesterday with some recommendations based on, um, and, and some commentary on what businesses are doing. COVID uh, lockdowns continuing, causing pressure on businesses, some businesses easing up on mm -hmm. China exposure because of that. And then IP theft, still a big issue. Uh, some businesses backing away, or be, it's being recommended that they back away uh, because of that. What are you doing investment-wise? Are you leaning in to China, or are you leaning back? Actually, I'd say we are right in the middle. IBM has been in China for over 25 years. Uh, China has been uh, good for IBM's business. We stay away from these issues around IP. So unlike many others, we have not transferred our IP into local companies. Where and when we have, it's been with open eyes and we're trying to create ventures that create value for both sides. I kind of come back to maybe David Ricardo's perspective. Nations should uh, compete on the basis of comparative advantage. 
And I think it's better to have China in the ecosystem than not. So I think it is actually better for the U.S. economically. And that's why I'm so glad that President Xi and President Biden sat down and talked in the hopes of diffusing some of these tensions. All that said, should we have a level playing field where both sides get equal advantages? Absolutely. Okay. So IP, absolutely. We are a strong believer in IP, as you know. I know. And we don't believe it should be taken away without the appropriate uh, value uh, placed on it. Yeah, it's hard All to get value out of those patents if people are taking the IP. <laughs> but that said, I think we would like to have China as a market. We have people there. We have a consulting business there. We have a systems business there. We have a technology business there. And certainly my hope is that that remains the case. Let me ask about blockchain. You've been um, one of the most vocal proponents of blockchain for doing things like tracking things through the supply mm -hmm. chain, even for ESG uses. Is the conversation around blockchain and the interest in it shifting because of what's happening in the crypto markets, which had been such a big part of the overall blockchain use case and justification and a driver of interest? Is, is the conversation changing? Is it coming to you? Or are people perhaps backing off? Actually, we've always been very clear that we are strong believers in blockchain, but we do not do anything with crypto. So I'm not putting any value in it, good or bad. That's a separate conversation, and we are not the experts on that. Right. However, the usage of blockchain as a technology for, I'll say, broader in supply chain, whether it's tracking goods across the ocean, whether it's the provenance of goods, uh, whether it's for verifying who actually is doing what with the carbon trails downstream or upstream. Mm -hmm. I think for all of those, blockchain is a wonderful technology that allows you to share information without necessarily revealing it to everyone. And I think that there's very few other technologies that do that. So I still remain a strong believer in blockchain in the supply chain use cases. But is, it, is the crypto stuff negatively impacting kind of the brand around blockchain or no? Not really. Okay. I haven't seen that. So let me ask you about um, the, the consulting workforce, which is a huge one at IBM. Last time we sat down and talked, you said, this is actually an advantage for IBM. People need tech talent. We have that talent. The key is to get that deployed in the right places. Since that conversation, we've increasingly seen tech companies doing layoffs. And there are questions about the, the efficiency and how, how much you're able to deploy that workforce. Are you going to stick with the level of headcount that you have because you still see that purely as advantage? Or do you cut some? Are you able to get it more efficient? So number one, am I still a believer that those with tech talent, as in a large consulting workforce, will be advantaged going forward? Yes, I still actually believe that. Why? Because many of our clients are wanting to use technology for deflation. And as they want to use technology for deflation, they run short on talent inside. So they come to people like us. We tend to get a global talent pool. We get them from many countries, and then we can deploy them as appropriate, leveraging all of the remote technologies that we all learned so well during COVID, but also from before COVID. So that's the sort of the macro answer. Then getting down to it, when we look at our demand right now, we see very strong demand for our consulting teams globally. So that tells us that we should be able to keep our current headcount uh, as opposed to cut on it. Now, that all is based on our predictions when we look at maybe none to a mild recession in some parts of the world next year. If there's something deep, that'll change that equation. But I don't really see that, to be honest. And so I, I would uh, tell you right now, we have no intentions of uh, reducing 
are cutting down on that headcount. But it sounds like some of this hinges on Q4, right? Because people are going to react to, does the consumer show up for them as much as expected? Does the customer need to cut back? And therefore, there are downstream effects. Less than Q4, then more on our predictions for what will happen over all of 2023. Right. I'm not going to react to only one quarter because there could be some ups and downs. But most of our book of business for Q4 is already spoken for. So in consulting, it'll be more about what do we see coming into the second half of 23. Finally, I wonder about demand from particularly government, where IBM has long been strong, and industrial versus other areas. I've been hearing that particularly for companies that have uh, a legacy of government business that's tending to be steadier during a period like this than some others. So either you press it or you do a lot of homework. So you're right, government has been a strong place for IBM. You know, just recently I was across the Saudi Arabia, the UAE, India, and then I can go back and reflect on Germany, UK, Japan. In all of these cases, we have really strong relationships with government. And as government modernizes, as government wants to bring more online citizen uh, services, I think that's a great opportunity for IBM. And you are going to see us invest even more there. Industrial is where I said, okay, you got some insight because that's exactly the conversation we've been having inside. I actually believe there will be a couple of trillion worth of capital behind industrial companies that is going to move around amongst countries. As that moves around, that's a great opportunity, whether you call it re-regionalization. I don't think globalization goes away, but maybe the trade routes begin to change a little bit. And as that happens, that's a great opportunity on bringing automation, artificial intelligence, and hybrid cloud technologies into that world as well. Well, thank you. I will take some credit on the homework side. Yeah. Arvin, Arvin Krishna, CEO and chairman at IBM. Thanks for sitting down with me here on Tech Check. Always a pleasure, John. Let's turn now to chips and let's start with Micron. Stock is falling this morning after lowering 2023 supply forecasts for select wafers and announcing plans for additional CapEx cuts moving forward. And then there is Apple. The company currently sources all of its semis from Taiwan, but now... CEO Tim Cook reportedly telling staff that he will be buying some chips from a factory in Arizona. He's got a few options here. Not many. There's Intel, operates foundries in Arizona, and TSMC's set to open their own plant there in 2024. Uh, suspense builds, Carl. Be a big notch, a big win for Intel, but we don't know yet. Um, but, you know, Apple has been embarking on this policy of diversification, as, John, you just spoke to Arvind about the China risks. Yeah, I mean, that would be a big win for Intel, as you mentioned, Intel building there, also building in Ohio. This is uh, Pat Gelsinger's argument, is that when it comes to advanced node, right, which they're saying they can build toward and actually execute, there will be demand there regardless. Now, we, we still got a year plus before we see whether the technical minds at Intel are able to deliver on that vision, but at least the context, Carl, the setup, is directionally correct, right? If you've got Tim Cook, who's interested in getting uh, domestic chips, hey, Apple needs a lot of chips, so there's, there's a lot of money there to be had. Uh, even if Intel isn't designing the chips for Apple, making them, if you got a foundry business, isn't bad either. Yep, uh, definitely baby steps, uh, both on production, assembly, uh, and sourcing on, the Apple, on Apple's front. In the meantime, another crypto lender pausing withdrawals this morning due to FTX after saying less than a week ago there would be no impact. And, of course, possible regulation heating up on the Hill. We'll get to that as Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? 
Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Well, another crypto lender. Genesis this time is pausing withdrawals this morning as the FTX fallout continues. The company tweeting just last week the business was not seeing an impact despite $175 million worth of funds locked at FTX. And now this morning halting withdrawals and loan originations themselves after facing what they called, quote, abnormal withdrawal requests. All of this as Congress grows increasingly skeptical of crypto and some more headlines on that. Elon Moe's got the latest from Washington. Hi, Elon. Hi, Carl. Well, Congress is planning a new crackdown on crypto. Just this morning, the House Financial Services Committee announced that it plans to hold a hearing in December to investigate the collapse of FTX. And lawmakers said they want to hear from the players involved, including Sam Bankman-Fried. There is no sugarcoating it. The FTX collapse has been a dumpster fire. FTX users have been left out to dry. The digital asset ecosystem is in limbo. Now, we have reached out to the Senate to see if it plans to follow suit. But just yesterday, I talked to the top Democrat on the Senate Banking Committee, Sherrod Brown, and asked if he needs to hear from Bankman Freed directly. We are aggressively searching for answers. Um, we'll see if bringing him in front of Congress is the right, right thing. But clearly, um, there's a public trust violated here, and we need to understand it. Still, the crypto industry is not just on the defense here in D.C. It's also pushing to include a fix for those IRS reporting requirements in the big government omnibus spending bill that Congress hopes to pass during the lame duck session. Guys, I'm at the Blockchain Association's Policy Summit here in D.C. And even here, there is an acknowledgement that crypto's reputation in Washington has been damaged. And a lot of the conversation here is over how to fix it. Back over to you. Elon Moy, thanks so much for bringing us the latest. Uh, meanwhile, Genesis is just the latest crack in the FTX saga. Crypto lender BlockFi reportedly considering its own bankruptcy filing due to FTX exposure. Plus, FTX updated their bankruptcy filing this week, admitting they have as many as one million creditors whom are owed funds and now face a proposed class action lawsuit filed in Miami. Joining us now is CoinShares CEO Jean-Marie Magnetti. CoinShares engages in digital asset trading research and exchange-traded products saw their own FTX hit. Jean-Marie, thanks for being with us this morning. You had about a $31 million exposure to FTX, about $3 billion in Bitcoin, $1 billion in Ether, $26 million worth in dollars in USDC stablecoins. Where do you hold the rest of your reserves, and how can you assure customers that those are safe, given the fallout and contagion that is still very much ongoing? Well, thanks a lot for having me. Um, it's a great question, actually. Um, we have... Uh, a requirement to have assets on different exchanges for the continuity of our business. But more importantly, uh, as soon as 2017, we saw the need for uh, custody 
to be done properly and to be done harmless and independently. And we built this great joint venture called Komainu, and Komainu is a joint venture between Niger and Nomura and Konchia, uh, with a view to secure our note holder uh, asset. How much of your reserves are in self-custody? Uh, we can't communicate on these numbers, but like more than what we owe our clients. More than what you owe your clients. Okay, I was looking at your balance sheet as well. At the end of Q3, lists $1.9 billion in total assets against $1.6 billion in liabilities. $1.1 billion of those assets are in something called digital assets. What makes that up? It is proper digital assets, which are safely stored. Those, so those are crypto tokens, is that right? Correct. Absolutely, so yeah. How do you mark them then? How often do you adjust those marks? And what kind of tokens time. are in there? Do you make that clear in your filings? Yeah, absolutely. Bitcoin is, is basically what we have against the product we issue to the market. So it's a one-to-one -one mark uh, and the liquidity is adjusted daily and the pricing often... marked in real time. So, so the, the pricing is, is marked in real time. We're working with an American company called Armanino, which has this real-time audit uh, solution, which allows them to investigate every single one of our uh, assets uh, in a real-time basis. So the interesting part for us here is like to keep building on Conchia key attributes, which are trust and transparency, uh, and to be able to transpose that to the market and to our note holder. Jean-Marie, I wonder, we're getting some word from the Bahamas uh, PM this morning that they didn't have, they argue, sole oversight on FTX's worldwide operation and that there's no uh, deficiencies in their regulatory framework that they think would have prevented it. Do you think regulators around the globe will be anxious to take ownership of any remedy or is this a hot potato that they'll try to pass off to others? I think you need to decompose this question in two parts. First of all, um, it is true that uh, in the FTX case, uh, the Bahamian regulator was not the sole regulator in the picture. Uh, now, so the question is going to be which one is going to be the lead regulator on that is a, is a different question. Normally, it would be the headquarter regulator taking the lead. Uh, when it comes to who's going to handle the, the mess at the end of the day, I think the regulator over the world has been very, very careful about all the AML risk uh, associated with crypto, but I've kind of like forgotten a little bit about uh, how they handle consumer protection and, the, you know, refusal to regulate and up that created migration from top regulator to less so good regulator. I would say, you know, there is no secret that, you know, for many, many decades, you know, whether it's New York, London, Paris or Frankfurt or Hong Kong has been the key regulator in the world. Uh, and now you see Bahamas, you know, Dubai and other jurisdiction uh, kind of coming out. The reality is like, um, are they as good as the traditional regulator? It's probably not a question of as good, it's probably it's more, and more a question of do they have the same expertise in-house and the same, um, you know, uh, expertise and experience uh, over the years? Right. Jean-Marie, I just want to go back uh, briefly to our previous conversation. So you won't disclose mm -hmm. how much of your reserves are in cold storage versus on exchanges. But do you think that that's important in this current environment? Do you have any intention of disclosing that, especially as you guys lost yeah. $30 million by holding uh, well, much of it on, so your first of it all, on FTX? Absolutely. So first of all, $30 million uh, in Concha Financial is not the end of the world for Concha. Concha has some very strong financials. Uh, second of all, um, our asset clients are ring-fenced from our capital trading activities, so there is no contagion effect between the two. Uh, and finally, I would say that, uh, you know, we are a listed company, uh, and as a listed company, I ought to communicate to the market as a whole and not just to CNBC. So if we want to make this announcement, we will do it as a proper press release to the entire market as one go.
Okay. Jean-Marie, thanks very much for being with us. CoinShare, see you. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Well, e-commerce is not an everyone wins market right now, at least according to our next guest. Why he says to buy Etsy and Amazon here. That's after the break. Stay with us. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston checking on the markets half past the hour on this Wednesday. Pretty tight range. Dow's up only about 15 points. We've been hovering right around 3980 or so Uh, on the S&P. Yields have been also uh, moved around by Ecodata, of course, and that Fed speak from daily at the top of our 10 a.m. Let's get a news update with Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha. Hey, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. Home builder sentiment fell for the 11th straight month to its lowest level in more than a decade. NAHB chairman Jerry Conter said higher interest rates have significantly weakened demand for new homes. Builders who are already faced with higher costs for labor and materials are offering deals and incentives uh, to find buyers from a shrinking pool. Even as demand for new homes has dropped, demand for home improvement remains high. Retailers Lowe's reporting positive earnings today and beat Wall Street's expectations. The company said it is not seeing the negative impacts of inflation and that consumers are still spending on projects to upgrade their house. Home Depot reported similar demand strength in their earnings yesterday. And JetBlue announcing plans for transatlantic expansion. Flights from JFK in New York to Paris are expected to begin next summer. And the airline also plans to add flights from Boston to Paris. JetBlue began flights to London from New York in summer 2021 as the company tries to compete with legacy airlines along those routes. Strong dollars certainly enticing folks to head abroad, Carl. Yes, those who can afford it. Uh, Bertha, thanks. Bertha Coombs. Uh, Amazon just a few moments ago confirming that it is in fact beginning layoffs. In an email to employees today, Dave Limp, SVP of Devices and Services at Amazon, says, quote, we continue to face an unusual and uncertain macroeconomic environment. After a deep set of reviews, we recently decided to consolidate some teams and programs. One of the consequences of these decisions is that some roles will no longer be required. Let's discuss that a bit more as we go into a very important holiday season. Our next guest out with a new note saying that e-commerce is no longer an everyone wins kind of market, preferring market share gainers like, yes, Amazon. The analyst behind that note, Michael Norton, joins us in Moffat Nathanson. Michael, great to see you. Thank you for the time today. Thank you, Carl. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Yes, we did initiate this. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that your overall framework is that you're not a believer in sort of peak e-commerce, right? Yes, we expect to see continued penetration as we saw historically. Um, Going forward, we do acknowledge the fact that the consumer uh, is working off a little bit of a hangover where they spent more of their budget on goods than services, and we're seeing some of that normalize. But in the future, we see continued penetration into total retail spend, and we see a more competitive environment as the pandemic forced legacy brick and mortar to get serious about their e-commerce and also known as Omnicom strategies. 
and they invested heavily and they started to gain more market share than they did historically. There's been uh, quite a bit of work done on Amazon specifically by yourself and others about the impact of the layoffs, how much cost it might take out of every package, how much automation is going to add to that. How would you suggest viewers think about that and how it might impact earnings in the quarters to come? Yes, yeah, so we, we would like to acknowledge that the, the layoffs are troubling. These are individual people that are affected by these decisions. But when you look at the company holistically, uh, from the end of 2019 to today, they doubled headcount. They more than doubled their fulfillment infrastructure, effectively doubled revenue. And the company makes plans several years in advance. And the consumer didn't necessarily show up with the e-commerce spending rate that Amazon had planned. And we estimate the company is losing several billion dollars a quarter in the retail business when you back out the profits from their advertising business. In our initiation uh, and our note also this morning, uh, we expect them to start seeing improved margins uh, and start to get leverage in the fulfillment network that they have invested in these last two years. And we expect in, in, by the end of 2024, you could see uh, just on the fulfillment alone, $9 billion in operating income benefit. Hmm. Uh, Michael, I I've kind of long argued that Shopify is a competitor to Amazon from a philosophical perspective, trying to put more agency in the hands of small and medium business, give them a menu of options versus you know, them needing to, to drive into the arms of Amazon as third-party sellers. But what happens in this environment? I mean, aren't the, the third-party sellers more inclined to go with an Amazon because in part because of uh, iOS targeting changes, you know, some of those um, uh, revenue drivers, uh, customer acquisition drivers have broken down and, you know, Shopify also spending on a logistics build out that Amazon's already done? Yes, uh, this is the challenging issue facing the space, right? The, the terminology has been used a lot about Shopify that they're arming the rebels, right? And they're, they're trying to help merchants have an alternative outside of Amazon. Um, and they're spending a projected billion dollars in CapEx for their fulfillment network. But you make a great point. Uh, the privacy changes we've seen uh, in the internet space have made it more challenging for these smaller direct-to-consumer businesses to find their end user. And it's gotten more expensive, and we've seen it in some of the numbers. So for Amazon uh, that has the greatest traffic, has the user as it's at the bottom of the funnel looking to, to make a purchase, it makes it more attractive for merchants to sell on that platform. But again, it's, it, they have to buy advertising when they're on the Amazon platform. So it's, it's not just a total clean trade from one to the other. Amazon also has the flywheel effect, Michael. We talked about this at the beginning of the show, which Walmart is creating as well with their membership program, um, groceries, their different offerings, even advertising. Are these the e-commerce players or retailers rather that are set to win here? How can or do you see anyone else out there in terms of this space that could maybe get that flywheel going that can reach that potential? Yeah, so we expect the Walmarts and Amazon of the world to continue to consolidate the e-commerce space. And it's hard for other platforms that don't have unique product offerings or this type of logistics scale brought to the table by Walmart and Amazon and potentially at one point Shopify uh, to compete in this world. And capitalism, as we know, is, is a tough business. And you have 
companies uh, like Wayfair and Chewy who were first movers to the e-commerce space. They educated the consumer on how to buy a couch online. It's not something that people were comfortable for or automatically ship your dog food to your house. But brick and mortar woke up to this opportunity. The consumer has been educated to do it now and, and they have all rolled out those strategies. So uh, size is might in this space and we, we expect to see con continued consolidations by the large players. Pretty interesting. We're really in an interesting moment right now. Michael, appreciate it. Great, great to see you. Thanks for the help. Thank Michael, you so much for having me. Meanwhile, Chinese tech names, they continue to have a great November. Names like Alibaba, JD.com, up double digits since the first of the month, while Pinduoduo has gained a whopping 45%. The space has had a higher this morning amid reports that U.S. regulators gained, quote, good access to audits of firms whose stocks are listed here in the U.S. If you zoom out on this stock, though, they have been a major underperformer, these Chinese ADRs, over the last few years. We will continue to watch this story. Tech Check is back in two. Welcome back. TikTok facing fresh criticism after the head of the FBI said he's, quote, extremely concerned about China's influence over the company. Julia Borston joins us now with that story. Julia. Well, John, at a House hearing on Homeland Security, FBI Director Chris Wray told lawmakers that he shared their concerns about TikTok being used to compromise personal devices. Take a listen. We do have national security concerns, uh, at least from the FBI's end, uh, about TikTok. They uh, include the possibility that the Chinese government could use it to control data collection on millions of users or control the recommendation algorithm, uh, which could be used for influence operations if they so chose. This comes as the Treasury's Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. evaluates how to protect the data of TikTok's U.S. users. A TikTok spokesperson telling us, quote, the FBI's input is being considered as part of our ongoing negotiations with the U.S. government. Going on to say, we are confident that we are on a path to fully satisfy all reasonable U.S. national security concerns. TikTok's CEO shows the Chu weighing in on this at a Bloomberg conference, saying, quote, I'm very confident that through the detailed discussions that we're going to have, we will come up with a solution that will reasonably address the national security concerns. Chu saying that the company is working with its partner, Oracle, to isolate sensitive data on its American users so only U.S. staff would have access, saying it is extremely difficult to build this solution. The company is also reportedly looking to double its staff, interesting as these other companies cut back on their employee base. Meanwhile, Bernstein is saying, uh, quote, I think it's clear they know they are vulnerable and know they have to pull out all the stops to make sure they don't get banned in the U.S. Shares of both Meta and Snap are both down today, but both those companies would benefit if TikTok were severely curtailed. And guys, we have seen those stocks move higher on questions about the future of TikTok in the past. Right. So, Julia, the FBI essentially echoing what we've already heard from regulators and lawmakers on those on TikTok. Um, are we any more likely to see any action in the wake of those comments because they're coming from the FBI? And what do you think is taking so long when so many of our apps are already banned over in China? Well, so this is really up to CFIUS right now. This is a CFIUS review. That's part of the Treasury. That's what's going on right now. And this FBI um, input is 
being being considered as part of the CFIUS review. So, you know, we could we've heard, you know, Senator Marco Rubio speak out and say he thinks TikTok should be banned. He does not have an impact on CFIUS, but the the FBI director does um, sort of participate or at least contribute to that CFIUS review process. So I think that he's more likely to have an input than some of these other uh, voices we're hearing calling for TikTok to be curtailed. But I think that it'll be interesting to see um, what comes out uh, from the Treasury and this idea of whether or not TikTok has to uh, you know, sort of manage all of that U.S.-based data here in the U.S. Um, and it seems like that's what they're working on and what they're really hoping to get out of their partnership with Oracle. Yeah, flashbacks to a few years ago, JB. Pretty interesting. Uh, speaking of social media, Meta laying off 13% of its staff, about 11,000 people last week as concerns continue to rise around the company's spending on Reality Labs, its VR division. Our Steve Kovac sat down with Meta's VP of Reality Labs Partnerships at yesterday's CNBC Technology Executive Council in New York City and joins us with more. Hey, Steve. Yeah, Carl. So those meta layoffs impacted several parts of the company to rein in costs after years of hypergrowth during the pandemic. But the spending is still going to continue in Reality Labs. That's the metaverse division of the company that lost $10 billion last year and is on pace to lose even more this year. So all that spending frustrated investors last month as CEO Mark Zuckerberg doubled down on his metaverse vision, urging faith and patience for a payoff at some point in the future, <laughs> talked about those layoffs and there's uh, astronomical metaverse losses yesterday with VP of Reality Labs, Ash Javeri, at the TEC event. Here's what he told me about last week's layoffs and what they mean for the company's metaverse plans. The core business continues to be strong. That said, I think, you know, we need focus, right? And, and so in many ways, it doesn't change our efforts. I think it just helps focus them even further. Now, I also asked you very where he all this money goes. Is the metaverse really that expensive to build? And I'll paraphrase here. But in short, he said, yeah, it is in his view and in Meta's view. They're building a brand new computing platform from the ground up. And that costs a ton of money, especially if they want to get to the ultimate goal of a pair of sleek glasses that look like mine that can do all the things that Meta has been processing. But for, or promising, rather. For now, though, Javeri pointing to the new MetaQuest Pro headset, which he likened to the early flat-screen TV models we saw in the early 2000s. Expensive, maybe a little clunky, but will eventually become more affordable and more ubiquitous. Guys, send it back over to you. Okay, Steve Kovac, thank you. Speaking of Meta, shares are now down more than 30% since August, and Amazon's not far behind. More on both of those names after the break. Don't go away. NASDAQ down a little more than 1%. Check out the biggest laggards on the NAS 100 this morning. You've got Lucid, Lamb Research, Atlassian, DocuSign, some of those riskier names in the tech space. We're back in two minutes. Layoffs are rippling across big tech. Amazon confirming devices team layoffs earlier this hour. Activist investor TCI Fund calling on Alphabet to cut headcount yesterday and Meta slashing more than 11,000 jobs last week. Our next guest, however, maintains outperform ratings, or maybe therefore maintains outperform ratings on all three names. Joining us now, RBC's Brad Erickson here at RBC's Global Tech Conference. Brad, thanks for having me here. So these cuts, are they enough to get these operating models on the right path? Yeah, you know, at this point, I think it's a start. Right, like we've we've certainly seen a slowdown in the advertising business over the last six to nine months, and so this is clearly the response to that to try and preserve those margin pressures. 
I think over time, I mean, I think the, the, the top line and the overall macro around ad spending for these two businesses in particular remains the big debate and question mark. What we're hearing at this conference even here uh, yesterday and today is that there's a lot of concern, not so much about Q4, but what happens to ad budgets if we start out early next year, right? Mm -hmm. And so, fine, you can cut 10, 13, 15% of employees. Certainly helps stop the bleeding for now. If there's another leg down, you probably see the same thing in terms of further cuts. Part of my concern is that in a lot of cases, these cuts take companies back to the levels of employment where they were, say, 18 months ago. They hired that much during the pandemic and a little uh, post-pandemic period, and things have been booming into that period. So yeah. how much, who did they hire? Were these high-quality engineers? Was this SGNA where they thought, hey, we're gonna need support to push to a higher level? Who did they hire, and, and therefore how much um, how much is there that they can take off without jeopardizing the real builders? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, it's a mix. You, whenever, you, whenever you listen to these conference calls, right, you listen to Google or, or Meta talk about these things, they talk primarily around adding technical talent is the term they use, which is software engineering, right? So I think that hasn't really changed. But to your point, I think we cover some smaller companies that also very much participated in the, in the boom of COVID being digital-centric businesses. And in many cases, not only was there a, a increased need, we'll call it, for infrastructure expansion and those sorts of things, but also you had just such a rush of customers. You needed salespeople, you need customer support, other levels of, of operating costs, essentially. And I think that's where, as the business normalizes, you can start to cut some of that out. Um, I mean, given what's happened at Amazon and given what's happened at Meta, it would seem like they do have at least some cover, uh, right, to not be an outlier in not cutting headcount, right? In terms of being an outlier, sorry, I didn't quite follow the question. I was going to say, I mean, they, the, some of their largest peers are doing the same thing. It seems like it would clear the runway uh, for, for shareholders to digest that kind of move. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, the, the best data point, of course, was Amazon last quarter. As they realized they were over capacity, they lost almost 100,000 employees quarter over quarter. I think they lost 90,000 employees. So, yeah, you're absolutely seeing companies take this moment to, to trim. I think our view is, is that, you know, it, it, it could be iterative. This could be the end, right? If you're a management team, you definitely want to try and make one cut and not sort of have that linger over from an employee morale perspective and all that. But, you know, like we said, as we see this caution into early next year, it remains to be seen whether there's further to go. Yeah, that's a great way to sort of bookend the conversation with Arvind Krishna from IBM at the beginning of the show and looking at the consumer and uh, e-commerce and social and marketing at the end. Brad, thank you. You're welcome. Good to be here. Still to come on the show, Elon Musk uh, making a new ultimatum for Twitter employees. Get hardcore or leave. That story is next. Stay with us. Markets had plenty to process this morning as we sort of circulate around uh, 39.80, 39.75 or so. Busy day for Ecodata, of course. Retail sales did come in ahead of expectations. X-Autos almost doubled the expectation at 1.3. We were looking for six-tenths. That's the best since February. But, of course, got to blend in, D, uh, the results from Target and from Lowe's. Mm -hmm. The Fed speak. Uh, Mary Daly talking about a peak terminal Fed funds 
that could bump up against five and a quarter, which, by the way, Goldman just upped their forecast uh, by a little bit, looking at five and a quarter as well. Again, this issue of inflation may be easing a bit, but being stickier over the long term. Yeah, busy day for the markets. Also another busy day for Elon Musk, the new Twitter chief issuing an ultimatum to employees writing in a new email that they must commit to long hours at high intensity or receive three months severance if they do not want to be a part of his vision for the new Twitter. That's not the only thing Musk has to worry about, though. He's also taking the stand today in a trial over his 2018 compensation package at Tesla that is worth upwards of $50 billion. However, at the testimony, Musk said that he doesn't want to be the CEO of Tesla or, in fact, any company. We've kind of heard that before. John hasn't stopped him from collecting companies. It hasn't. And, and granted, he is the owner of Twitter as well as the CEO. But that's kind of... That's a difficult message to stomach, Carl, in a day when he's asking his employees to be hardcore and commit to, to the, the long hours of Twitter to say, I don't even really want to be the CEO of Twitter. This is temporary, but um, these are times when things are shifting, I suppose. Yeah. Also in that, uh, in that cross, uh, John, he did repeat what he has said before about the FTC consent decree and that it was agreed to under duress and in his view, because of that, is invalid, which would be news not just to Lena Khan and Ed Markey right. and all uh, the regulators who will continue, I assume, to hold that as a sword over the company. Yep. He says that he may eventually find another Twitter CEO. Wonder who that could be. No, who it won't be. Meanwhile, guys, we've got another great show tomorrow. Airbnb's Brian Chesky joining us at 11 a.m. This is an interview you don't want to miss, guys. He's putting his own guest room up on Airbnb. He's going to talk about that process and important tea leaves from him on demand, right? This travel sector has been holding up very well, Carl, versus some other parts of the economy. Yeah, United today says uh, the Thanksgiving holiday will be the busiest travel day since COVID began. So that's going to be key to watch, uh, especially on the lodging front. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.